Hey folks, it's Jeff here. Just wanted to say a big hello to all of you who are part of our online podcast community. You need to know that though we may not see you on Sundays, you are such a valuable and cherished part of our community, as much as any in-person community. I'm, I'm guessing that you're tuning in because you're finding value in what we're doing in our weekly Sunday messages and Maybe you're cultivating a spirituality that you're finding is inspiring you and equipping you to take water to your world. That right there would be exactly what we're hoping is happening for you. Look, over the past month, we've been asking our in-person community to consider making a one-time donation before the end of the year. The truth is our projected general donations were lower than expected this year. We've kept our expenses below budget, but we're forecasting a shortfall by the end of the year. So we're hoping right now to be able to raise enough money before year end to erase the loss. And I'm wondering if you would consider helping us as well. Honestly, any amount would be greatly appreciated. All you'd have to do is go to friendschurch.ca forward slash donate and give to our general fund. That would be so appreciated. You know, I've noticed as some people have gone and done this, they've been signing up as well for pre-authorized giving, which is just an automated form of donating, usually on a monthly basis. Rather than just giving a one-time amount, they kind of commit over a longer term. This is huge for us as a community just because it helps us more accurately predict our income for the coming year as we set our budgets. Yeah, we're in budget season right now. And we don't want to have to keep coming back year after year at the end of the year to clean this up. So that's why I'm reaching out. Whether you can give a one-time or you can sign up monthly, maybe you're listening to this and you can't afford to do anything right now. I just want you to know that we care about you. We're thrilled that the Ministry of Friends Church is helping you in some way. Maybe it's helping loved ones of yours too. I don't know. But regardless of whether you can support us financially right now or not, you just need to know we're grateful. We're grateful for you. So, hey, enjoy today's message. Good morning, everybody. Wow, you've been answered. That's really exciting. Okay. This is um, an addendum. I originally hadn't planned to do this service, but it worked out that I was back, and uh, there was a gentleman who I knew who'd experienced something that I wanted to share with y'all. Now, remember, this series is called Disagreeing Beautifully. This is not a series about saying who's right and who's wrong. This is not a series about taking one part of a story and saying the other part of the story trumps it. This series is designed to teach us to have difficult conversations. Teach us to have conversations where we can have insight into stories that maybe aren't the story that we connect to. Now, we set up this series by saying we are going to approach these conversations with empathy and curiosity. So, again, the bonus is we're going to have an amazing conversation. But the thing I want to teach every one of us, and I want to learn myself, is how to have these conversations and have them go well. So a couple of things I want you to watch for. Feel if your nervous system starts getting a little bit charged up. 
oh, oh, you know, he didn't say this, or oh, oh, that, that's, I don't like, oh, oh, that's not, watch for that. That's your body kind of freaking out a little bit. That kind of reaction usually makes conversations go really poorly. Anyone who's partnered, you know that when you have a conversation with your partner and you get a little triggered, you tend to not handle things well, right? So watch for that. Just note it. Be like, ooh, what am I freaking out about? What's causing me to get upset? And then relax and move back to empathy and curiosity. I'm going to be your guinea pig. I'm going to do my best to ask good questions. Questions that elicit incredible stories, elicit understanding and awareness of somebody's experience, that don't shut down the conversation, that keep it open. Watch for that. When I ask a dumb question, <laughs> in your mind be like, yeah, that was dumb. In fact, you can email it to me, Vince at Friend Church. <laughs> Send me a critique. Yeah, that wasn't very good. Actually, there's some people who've done a great job of critiquing the last few I did. It is true. Some of the questions were just dumb. Like, well, why did I ask that question? I don't know. We're trying to learn the skill of having incredible diff- incredibly difficult conversations, but have them go well. And let's be honest, we're coming into Christmas. The chances of you all having tricky conversations in the next month, pretty high. So again, we're going to learn how to have difficult conversations and do them well. The bonus is we're going to hear about somebody who was in Israel only weeks after the incursion where Hamas crossed the border into Israel. Right now, the facts stand at um, 859 civilians killed, 348 military and police personnel killed. Approximately 200 hostages were taken. I don't know about you, but the first day they had the display put on outside and I walked in, that one hit me. I sat there one Monday morning just looking at it, reading names, looking at ages. The news, it's about numbers. This many, this many, this many, this many. But it's a human story, isn't it? Now the gentleman that we're going to talk to, um, he knows one part. There's infinitely more we could talk about. If you know somebody who's been living in Gaza for the last however many weeks, and they're in Canada, and they'd be willing to let me talk to them, I would love it. But that's not his experience. His experience is sitting right where the incursion took place, talking to people who experienced it firsthand. The one moment you see the picture that we sent out, right? There's him in a helmet and a flak jacket. There's a wall. That's Gaza City. That's the smoke from Gaza City you see there. This is firsthand. So remember, first and foremost, this is a story about having good conversations. And the beauty is we're going to experience something today together that probably is going to be moving to you. It's, it's been moving to me. So with that, I want us to give us a warm friend church welcome to Rabbi Glickman. Thank you for coming, Good Rabbi. Good morning. Good morning. Just for me. Uh, that one's mine. I okay. didn't bring... Oh, I forgot. I'll forget. It's okay. I'll he asked, he asked me for one thing to bring him a water, and I did nothing. It's no problem. I'm going to no get problem. you one in a it's second. No, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, 
So let's start at the beginning. The reason that we're here to get today is because you're the rabbi of the community here. Yes, and it's so wonderful for me to be here today with you. You know, so often we're, we have our services on Friday nights and Saturdays. You're here on Sundays, and then the, the twain don't ever meet. So it's great to be able to be here. We've so long treasured our relationship mm-hmm. with Friends Church, and I'm glad to be with you and see the exciting things you're doing on Sunday mornings. Fantastic. So let's just get to know you a little bit, and then I'm going to take you to Israel, if that's okay. Fine. Where are you from? So I grew up outside of Chicago in the United okay. States. I've been here. I came here to become the rabbi here at Temple with my wife, Karen, who's with me this morning. We, we've been here for uh, about seven and a half years, I think. About really? seven and a half years, yes. I was going to say three years, literally. <laughs> seven and a half years. Now, yes. again, I'm going to go off my TV knowledge, which is always really accurate. <laughs> Did you grow up in a Jewish community, like where you grew up? Was it very... Thank you very much. Nice. Oops. Uh, uh, yeah, so I grew up in a Jewish home. Okay. Uh, was active, my family was active in my synagogue. My, it, we, be, we joined the synagogue. Then my uncle became the rabbi of the synagogue, coincidentally. Okay. He was a role model of mine. And uh, so I, I grew up and you know, went to Jewish camps and uh, studied Hebrew and things like that as a kid. And, Same uh, thing, every, like kosher? Not strictly kosher, no. Um, uh, reformed, congregate, reformed Jews aren't as strict about that. Uh, I became a, a little more observant in that. Area than my fam- family did as I as I uh, increased my Jewish connections, but but certainly active in the Jewish community and Jewish life. Sorry, you kosher like you can eat whatever you want. Uh, Reform Jude in Reform Judaism, it is uh, choice through knowledge. So you're supposed to study it, expose yourself to it, try it out, and figure out what's meaningful for you. Yes. Hmm. Okay, I didn't know that. Learn something, <laughs> Learn something new. I'm- so you were here. You obviously read about uh, October 7th. Yes. What's, like, what was your first reaction when you heard that? Well, I remember waking up that morning. It was a Saturday morning. morning. It was a holiday for us. And just my phone all of a sudden started pinging uh, with news of the attacks uh, from friends of mine in Israel and from friends of mine here. I'm, I lived in Israel for two years back in the 80s. Been back several times since. I have family there. It was very frightening to hear about this. When was the uh, last time you were there? So the last time we were there... Karen and I went uh, for a conference that, that I was in in late February oh, uh, of this like, year. Of this year. Of, of this year, yeah. So we, so, yeah. What's, what was the difference between February and then within the year you're back again? Did it feel like the same country? What was the moment? Well, certainly the same country, of course, but the feeling in the country was so different. Uh, you know, look, Israel is a, a tension-ridden place, okay. uh, and in certain, you know, you don't go to certain parts of the country with, without guards or military escorts or things like that. But those are, you know, those are the places that most Israelis don't go, and uh, uh, mo- you know, most of Israeli life is not what you see on TV. It's people going to school, people okay. going shopping, <laughs> all that. Uh, what happened on October seventh um, uh, was. Uh, utterly horrible and terrifying for hundreds of thousands of Israelis who found themselves directly in harm's way. Uh, It is uh, a a, a traumatized place. Now, that said, people are still going to work and still going shopping. In one of the emails I sent to my congregation, uh, one of the days I was there, I sent daily emails home. I said, you know, we saw this horrible thing, all these horrible things, and then we got caught in a traffic jam on the way home. Mm -hmm. Israel is the country now of death and traffic jams. Um, Okay, so there's this juxtaposition of normal life. You know, people are still going to work, putting their shoes on one at a time, and still, so what... Like the traumatic side of it, how do you experience that as a an outsider? 
Like, did you, did people tell you stories? What was the, when you say it's a well, traumatized... Well, you know, it's an, for, for a, a diaspora Jew, for a Jew who lives outside of Israel, to go to diaspora... You. you all knew what diaspora was, right? <laughs> it kind of come, come, comes from the word meaning dispersion. Right. So there are Jews who live in Israel and Jews outside of Israel in the dispersed communities of the world. So diaspora Jews are non-Israeli Jews. But it feels, there's a connection still. Yes, exactly. So, so, for, so you, you said, how does it feel as an outsider? I mean, of course, I am an outsider. I don't live in Israel. I don't vote in elections there. Right. And yet we feel a very special connection with that place and its people. Oh. So I'm an insider-outsider. Uh, you know, um, I came as both, as, as most uh, Jews around the world feel. So there's a sense of, it happened there, but it happened to me as well. It's, it's not like if I were to go to France. I mean, France is a beautiful country. Right. Uh, but it, it's, it's certainly not my country. It's not, you know, I don't feel, I don't feel a, a family connection or actually have direct relatives in France. And I don't feel that, 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 that sense of connection with France that I do with Israel, which is a Jewish country. One of the things as a, an outsider to your community, I've realized there's um, the Jewish religion you meet here, but there's a Jewishness that's more cultural. That, that's, that's what a lot of non-Jews have a, a hard time understanding about Judaism, is that the whole ethnic and cultural piece of being Jewish uh, doesn't have a parallel in many other religions. There is uh, there's a Jewish country, as we've been discussing. There's Jewish, there are Jewish languages. Hebrew is the most popular, but there are many others. There's Jewish dance and Jewish art and Jewish food that I enjoy a little bit too much of sometimes. <laughs> Anything that, ha- that you would associate with the cultural group has its counterpart in Judaism. Okay. So let's, now that we've kind of given them a bit of a snapshot, my sense of it is, this happened, but for you, it's deeper than that. For all Jews, it's a deeper sense of that's to us as well. It's not us, but it is also us. And that's why when I woke up and saw that news on October 7th, you know, within the next couple of days, I realized I got to go. I need to be there. I, I, it's hard for, it was hard for me to articulate why, other than I just felt a pull, and I wanted to make sure that if I went, I wouldn't be getting in the way. Right. Um, I mean, just you know, physically, just at one level, of course, they're dealing with a lot of other, a lot of very serious issues. Right. I don't know if they wanted. I didn't know if they wanted to deal with a rabbi from Canada coming and saying, "What's going on?" Uh, and uh, <laughs> can I get some and, pillows and, in my hotel room? And, like, and, and just on a more practical level, hundreds of thousands of people in, in Israel were had been evacuated. I didn't want to take a hotel room from somebody right. who needed one. So I reached out to friends. Um, actually, a guy I've known since I was in high school just became the Israeli ambassador to Austria. So I connected with with him with some other people on the ground in Israel. And the message I received was unanimous. Come, we want you here. Why? We want we want you to see what is happening. We uh-huh. want you to bear witness to what we are experiencing. Huh. So take us in. You fly in. I think, if I remember correctly, you said it's a milk run to get there for you. There's no direct flights right now. I uh, I had four plane tickets. I think canceled four flights. Uh, you know, um, and uh, finally, I, I ended up flying from here to Heathrow, from Heathrow to Cyprus. Okay. To Cyprus, from Cyprus, I went through a very uh, heavy security to get on the, the final leg of that flight, heavier security than I ever remember going on before. And I got to is- Israel on the night of Sunday. I think it was the Sunday, the thirteenth. I think okay. um, late, late that night. The, 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 the experience, the planned part of the experience, began the next morning. Now, um, I was able, you had a Zoom call with your community, mm-hmm. and so you shared some slides. One of the things that stuck out with me is the feeling in the airport for you. So you get to the airport, 
And the first thing you see as you're walking down the concourse of the airport are the pictures of the hostages. Uh, like what we have out here. But in the airport concourse, for some reason, it seemed even more uh, overwhelming and that it just went on, on. You know, airport concourses, as we know in Calgary, can be very long. And, uh, and it just went on and on. P- p- pictures of men and women and ch- children. And it was very moving. That was right in the airport. And little did I know that that was only the first taste of, of the overwhelming... Um, the, the overwhelming experience I was about to, to, to have. Um, there, you know, there are, in Tel Aviv, there's a, a square outside the Tel Aviv Museum. It used to be just called Museum Square, and now it's called Kikar HaTufim, the, the hostages square. And they have a table uh, with a place set for every one of the hostages with a, their picture on the chair going, you may, this was in the news, you may have seen it, going out down for hundred, you know, a couple hundred meters, it goes down. There, there, is, um, uh, there, there was another square where they had an empty bed for every hostage. Wow. Many of them cribs, hundreds and hundreds of them, empty beds. Um, and you, you know, I was thinking these people, uh, just thinking, you know, all of these people, I mean, thankfully some of them have come home, many of them have not. Um, did you, know, you get to interact with any of the families of the hostages? So the first day we were there, we went to the offices of the, um, the, the, the hostage forum. This is, the, these are the people that, put, that made those posters that we see out there. Um, we were greeted by a group of former Israeli ambassadors who were doing uh, work to get to get um, uh, diplomatic pressure on Hamas to release the hostages. They do a lot of public relations work. It was like a command central there. And we met with, with well, I'll just tell you one story. A woman we met with, she, her daughter is 23 years old. She um, was at this um, Supernova Music Festival the morning of October 7th, and she got a call from her daughter saying, there's rockets coming in, they're shooting, I don't know what to do. She said, you know, hide if you need to, get yourself out however you can, let's stay in touch. Her daughter called her back a little while later. She said, Mom, I've been shot. Uh, I'm hiding with a car, in a car with my friends. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get out. And the mother was saying, you're gonna be strong, you're gonna do this, you're a strong person, you're gonna get through this. She talked with her for an hour, pep talking her for an hour, and suddenly there was screaming in Arabic, and the phone line went dead, and she hasn't heard from her daughter since. Her daughter's picture is Romy Gonen, she's on the, the wall outside the sanctuary. These are the kinds of stories we heard. How does, yeah. That's a heavy one. And that was just one of many. There are so many others. Um, if Can I just share one yeah, of them? So please. at the hostage forum, we met, and this I wrote about, and if you, I had an article in last week's Herald. We met a man named Devere Rosenfeld. Devere Rosenfeld's sister lived with her husband and twin 10-month-old boys in Kfar Aza. Kfar Aza is a kibbutz, a small little socialist kind of settlement just across the border from Gaza. Just one second. Yes. Why are they living there? Because it's the most beautiful part of the country, and, um, uh, and, uh, people, and it's part of Israel. It's a small country. You've got to live some, somewhere. Hmm. Uh, and it's a beautiful part of the country. There are peace activists who are doing work with, um, with people on the other side of the border. I mean, to just go on a tangent a little bit, sure. when Karen and I were there in February, we went down there. We, we saw a... Um, we went to one of the kibbutzim, one of these, these little settlements right near there, and there was a woman 
who would used to go in her 70s. She used to take walks in the morning, and she'd take pictures on her phone of the things she'd see, the sky, the flowers. And somehow she was able to make contact with somebody on the other side of the border who was willing to do the same thing, to take walks in the morning and take, pic- pic- take pictures on his phone. It was very dangerous for him to, be, to agree to do so with a, a, an, an Israeli Jew. He could have suffered you know, horrible thing, consequences if it had gone out. So he had to do it anon- anonymously. And we saw a display of the photographs that these two people had ta- taken, uh, but the display didn't indicate who had taken which picture. Oh, interesting. Sometimes it was obvious. If there was a lot of Arabic, it was clearly in Gaza. If there was a lot of Hebrew, it was clearly in Israel. (laughs) But you know what? The skies over Gaza usually look a lot like the skies over Israel. Ah. And the flowers in Gaza usually look a lot like the flowers in Israel. It was very moving. So there's Um, something about the humanity. Right now we use labels, Palestinian, Israel. There's this like... They're both humans living lives. Yes, we, we met a man named Ophir Liebstein there. He was the mayor of a group of towns. He said, you know, I know, I get emotional saying, telling this story, I know, he said, that there are people on the other side of the border who wish me harm. Uh, but I also know that the vast majority of them are people ju- just like me, mm-hmm. people who want to, you know, just trying to live their lives as peaceably as they can. Wow. He, was a, he was a sweet man. And on October 7th, he was killed in a firefight, as was his son, who was going out to try to, to save him. Uh, I, um, wow. So I, we, we stood at the place where he, where, where he died. I met this man in February. How, how could I have ever imagined that, what, eight months later, I would be standing at the place where he was murdered? Um, so they live there because it's a beautiful place and because that's where they live. Okay, so... Take us so, back so, to the we, story. so we met this man, Devere Rosenfeld. He was telling us about his sister who lived with her husband and twin, 10 months old, in Kfar Aza, in this kibbutz. Right. Um, and the attack started. All the homes have safe rooms, places with shelters. But the shelters were created for, like, to protect them from shrapnel and things like that, not from gunfire, direct gunfire. So a lot of the people ended up dying in these safe rooms when their homes second. got stormed. The, the houses, like there's so much violence in there that they build the houses around safe rooms? Yes, yeah, the houses have, and it's not uncommon for people to have, you know, for people in that part of Israel to have, you know, to, for there to be incoming rockets, one or two. Um, Just one uh, or two. And then they kind of roll their eyes, typically, and they would go into their safe room for a little while, and then the sirens would stop, and they would go off and re- resume their lives. So, again, I'm, we're not being very linear here, but let me just go back. Please. But when, when our ter- our trip first started, our guide was, is a guy who lives in Ashkelon. Ashkelon is a city just north of the Gaza Strip. A guy, maybe my age, a little bit younger, perhaps he's been a tour guide for a long, long time. He hadn't had any work since October 7th, of course. He got on the bus, and, you know, tour guides welcome you. It's, it's the typical, and within about two sentences, this man, this, two sentences, this man was in tears. Literally in tears, he said, it is so meaningful to us that you are here. You know, we often get a rocket or two that come in, we deal with it, fine. October 7th, it was unlike anything we had ever seen. Hundreds of rockets coming in. Israel has this Iron Dome defense system, which sends its own rockets up into the air to greet the incoming Hamas rockets and take them out before they can land and cause any damage. Uh, it's a good system, and it, took out, it takes out about 90% of the incoming rockets. So if one or two or three come in, you'll probably be pretty safe. This was 500, 1,000 coming in and one, you know, all at once. And 
so do the math. If Iron Dome only stops 90% of them, a lot of them land. And he said, you know, 200 meters from my house, kaboom, is this earth, this air tearing uh, explosion. You couldn't breathe for a moment afterwards. It was so intense. And then another explosion, the same distance on the other side. It was horrifying in a way he had never experienced. What was his, he said, you being here is meaningful. What yeah. was that? What was. Because when we were there, we, we, it, one of the reasons, we, I mean, we, I went, we went, I was there with about 14 of my colleagues from around the United States, I was the only Canadian, and we went to learn, we went to visit them, we went to give support, okay. uh, we went to pay a shiva call. In Judaism, when somebody dies, you do what's called sitting shiva for a week after the funeral. The family stays home, and it's the obligation of everybody to go and pay their respects, pay their condolences. Okay. That's part of what we did. We actually literally did a shiva call for a, an Israeli soldier who had been killed, and we visited with her family. She actually has family here in Calgary. Um, so so it, we, brought, we were there to bring comfort, and it, it resonated with him. Is there a side, like it almost described you, you're like, you know, you know, we're used to rockets coming in, just one or two, no big deal. Again, I wouldn't be feeling that. I'd be freaking out. But there, it almost seems like, no one pays attention to us. Like, this is just normal life. Is it there? No, they, they, they didn't feel ignored before. Again, they would just kind of roll their eyes. It's not a big deal. Um, now, at one point, we had to run for cover. Uh, we, and we were going into Ashkelon, where this guy lives. All of a sudden, three things happened at once. Everybody's phone started to ding, 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 ding. And we heard the air raid siren. And at that very moment, I was just sort of absentmindedly looking out the window of the bus. And you could see the Iron Dome, the plumes of the rockets going up from Iron Dome to take up the incoming rockets. And we had to run off the bus and take cover near a... a um, uh, a brick wall right nearby. We, I don't want to make too much of this. Okay, well, but what does it feel like as a Canadian from Calgary so right it, now? It was a little scary. <laughs> and, and the moment I say that, I mean, I, I remember that the Israelis went, underwent that hundreds of times over. I mean, like times a hundred, you know, hundredsfold right. that day. This, this was just a little bit. And so when I was, it wasn't, it was kind of, whoa, when we saw the plumes. And then as I was getting off the bus, somebody actually has films of me getting off the bus. I was the last one off. I wish I could say it was, I was, it was because I was heroically making sure that everybody else was safe, but I was sitting in the back. Uh, and uh, so as I was getting off, you could feel boom, 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 as the Iron Dome hit the, hit the other ro rockets. Um, I tell people, I dirtied my jeans, but just the knees. <laughs> just, 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 as, as I skidded into that, that wall. So, um, so this felt like that little moment was a taste of the smallest minute a, a of what they A small taste, yes, a small taste. But a ta and so it, it was scary, and I can only imagine what the Israelis underwent during the intensity of the attack that they experienced. So take us back. You said Okay, so we met this guy, Devere Rosa, Rosa, Rosenfeld. His, his sister and her twin boys and her husband were in the safe room in their house. The attacks began. They were, staying, they were in the safe room for several hours. Eventually, the babies needed formula and diapers. Okay. And so she snuck out into the house to get the formula and diapers. They spotted her through the windows. They shot her. They killed her. She was maybe late 20s, 30. Uh, then later, they stormed the house. They shot and killed her husband, Itai. They didn't kill the babies. They left the babies alive, crying in the house with their dead parents, so that, and then they, they, they set up an ambush. 
so that anybody who came, who heard the babies crying and came to try to help them, they could shoot and kill them too. The next night, we were at the offices of Hatzalah, United Hatzalah. This is an organization in Israel. They coordinate first responder volunteers, thousands of them throughout the country. And if there's an ambulance call or something like that, these volunteers can get there first sometimes and stabilize the situation so, until the ambulances arrive. They were playing us real-time footage of the calls that came in on October 7th. And coincidentally, they played us the call of what happened when they found these babies. Uh, and we heard the soldiers saying, we have these babies here, their parents have been murdered, uh, they, they look dehydrated, but otherwise, okay, what are we supposed to do with them? Uh, then, in the picture that you showed, we went to Kfar Aza, where they had lived. We saw their home, a pile of rubble now, in front is a, a, a heap of debris with some toys and their cribs on top. The kids in the rubble? No, the kids aren't in the rubble. No, so the kids' cribs in the, the rubble? Cribs, yeah, the cribs, yeah. All their stuff. The, 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 the kibbutz is pretty much totally destroyed. Um, uh, uh, and we went to a kibbutz, uh, another kibbutz called Shifayim. Just one second. Yes. As you're telling this story, you can tell you've told this story more than once. Yes. That's intense. It was, well, we were in this kibbutz. This young guy was showing, who lived in the kibbutz was showing us around. And, well, let, let me get back to what it was like being in the kibbutz in a second because sure. I, I want to finish. Yeah, yeah. So we went to this other kibbutz called Shifayim. Shifayim is north of Tel Aviv. The uh, Kfar Aza is south of Tel Aviv. But Shifayim uh, is a resort. And they have a water park there and a big hotel. And they took in many of the evacuees from Kfar Aza. And so we walk into this hotel. There's a big lobby in the hotel. Families are kind of hanging out. And, in the, and as we walk in, over in the corner, we see these two now 11-month-old baby boys with the ants who are now raising them, playing and being silly and doing the things that 11-month-old babies do. Um, How does that... I, I, don't, I don't have any words to add to, to that. Um, you know, thinking about the world that they're going to grow up in, and the, 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 you know, do, do we wish that they remember what happened to them or that they'll forget it? I, 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 words end, 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 end up failing me. Um, so, but yes, to go to uh, Kfar Aza, one of the residents of this kibbutz showed us around that Ophir Liebstein, the mayor who we had met, uh, talked about earlier, he had kind of adopted this young man. Okay. Um, and, but he was showing us around, he was saying things I couldn't imagine. You know, we were standing on a street looking at the destroyed apartment, you know, the townhouses kind of down the road. He said the three people who lived there, they were all killed. Two people lived next door to them, they were both taken hostage. The three people who lived in the next house, we don't know what happened to them. And, I mean, uh, can you imagine if somebody ever had to say that to you or about you and, and your street? Um, so... You know, that's the message I want to bring, is that whatever you think about what's going on in Israel, it is a traumatized place. Um, and and the, the experiences there are, these are real lives. 
and I'm sorry for rambling, but as I, we, 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 we had, at Farazo, as has been said, we stood at the spot, the breach in the fence where the soldiers had come across, where I took that picture. We had a service there, um, and uh, we, 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 uh, it ends with a prayer for peace with this destroyed kibbutz in front of me and in, uh, behind me and in, the, in front of me. We could see the clouds coming up over the outskirts of Gaza City. And of course, I knew that under those clouds, even though we couldn't get over there, under those clouds, there was untold suffering as well. So I don't want anybody to think for a moment that, that, that I am uh, uh, being uh, numb to the suffering on the other side of the border too. This conflict is utterly horrible. Uh, and... Um, yeah. So, would you tell? So, sometimes I know a bit about the story. There's one story you told me. So, I don't know if you guys knew. I used to climb a lot. Fell one time. Got a stick through my leg. Lots of stitches. Kind of messed with my head. Did pretty good. Went climbing again two weeks later. My blair dropped me again. My brain drew a line between nearly getting my leg torn off and getting dropped again. And I've never been able to be a really good climber since, because my brain goes. It happened once, oh, it happened again two weeks later. This is now a pattern. You told a story about one of the Hamas fighters who, would you tell it? Uh, one of the, the Hamas one, fighters? They were, they hid, and then however many days. Oh, so, so in Kfar Aza. So the same kibbutz. The same kibbutz. One, one, one of the story, you know, they, they, I mean, it took them several hours. Once the army got there, Israel was woefully underprepared for this. Okay. Unprepared, I should say. Uh, once it, the army got there, it took them, I, I don't know how long, a couple hours, maybe a couple days to, to take the kibbutz back. Uh, I, um, it, but after a couple days, they found a few of the terrorists hiding in the kibbutz. And then after two weeks, one of them sort of popped up out of nowhere who had been, been hiding in this kibbutz for two weeks. I don't know how he survived for that long. He must have had some sort of food or something. Um, and he kind of came out with his hand, hands up. But this was after the kibbutz had been secured, they thought. Well, that's the piece of it. So this moment, this tragic moment, all this death, rape, violence, like you name it, the army comes in and we think, oh, we're safe now. But then two weeks later, this moment happens again. Like... I know my brain. My brain would go, this is no longer a safe place. Well, it, it, I mean, remember, at, at that point, the kibbutz had been evacuated. Okay. They, nobody was living there, okay. they, except, I mean, there were soldier stations okay. there. When we went to Kfar Aza, they got us outfitted with our gear at another kibbutz across the street that for some reason hadn't gotten attacked. I don't understand why. Uh, but, uh, but when we went in, we had, had to have, we had to have military escorts who went in, those were the guys who said you need to move so that you're not in the line, There's no, they can't see you from across the border. Oh yeah, um, they had a service and they had them, and the, there's a hole in the wall, and they, they asked them to move so that people couldn't shoot through the hole in the wall and hit them. Well, they couldn't see, see us from across the border, we had to kind of stand behind some trees. Okay. Uh, so, um, Apologies, uh, uh, but, but But, I mean, essentially it was, it was all right there. Uh, so, it, I mean, this was all part of the unfolding trauma that Israel is experiencing. So, as we started, we started talking by saying, to be a Jew, a diaspora Jew, means you live here, but there's a connection, there's a heart connection to this. So, as somebody who feels this deep connection to that country, that space, those people, 
does it feel like it's kind of happening to you in some sense? Uh, do I feel like I'm like I'm in the line of Hamas fire? No, no. And I and I have you know I I, I wouldn't diminish the the experience that my Israeli brothers and sisters have undergone. Is this a scary time? Yes. How? Um, well, you know, th- this is in the context for Jews of, you know, uh, uh, I mean, and I, I have to be careful how I say this, but as you know, th- there is a, 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 a millennia-old history of, of, of hatred and oppression that Jews have faced. Now, we've had good times, too. And life in Canada here, while it has its challenges in some ways, is really good. Um, but the whole, you know, there are still people around who remember the Holocaust. And while this is certainly not 1930-33 again, uh, it pushes some Holocaust buttons. Uh-huh. This, this is, uh, you know, Hamas, if given their druthers, would certainly have killed everybody in that part of the country. Um, it, it, you know, Israel's being accused of genocide. I don't, I don't think that's fair. But and 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 Hamas was not able to commit genocide because the Israeli army stopped them. But they would have. So and it so feels this like a, that level of. So it, it is a reminder of this um, monster that is in the basement. <sighs> And every once in a while, can you know, has a way of sneaking out a little bit, and that's scary. As a, are you Canadian? By uh, we have permanent residence. Okay, welcome. I call myself a Canadian. Now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, does it hit you in that kind of deeper way as well, or is it my memory? So your, your community, obviously, you have people who, you know, parents, grandparents. Mm-hmm. <sighs> So it, it hits different Jews in different ways. Can I ask the, how it hits you? Um, it doesn't, it is, um, it makes me, uh, it makes me frightened for uh, my brothers and sisters in, in Israel in a very big way. Of course. Uh, and for my, my literally, my cousins in, in Israel. I feel pretty safe here, although there are, there is, there's been an outbreak of anti, anti-Semitic, there's been an outbreak of anti-Semitic attacks or incidents around the world, including here in Calgary. There hasn't been any violence, but there has been harassment, especially at the universities. Uh, you know, there are, um, uh, there, you know I, I am in favor of the creation of a Palestinian state, and I'm, I consider myself pro-Palestinian. There are people at those Palestinian re- rallies who chant slogans and hold signs that... Uh, you know, are understandably uh, expressing solidarity with their people. There are others who who engage in that pro- protest in a spirit of hate. Um, that's that's deeply concerning. Huh. So there is a sense, old wounds. Maybe for you, it feels a little bit different, but there still is an anti-Semitic weight to things. Yes, and and look, I've been talking to people in my congregation. One man whose mother survived Auschwitz you know, during the Holocaust. Uh, he is he is far more. Um, he you know he is uh, 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 far more. Um, uh, um, I'm trying. Uh, uh, I wanted to say triggered, but that's a, a d- dismissive word. He's far more viscerally moved by this because it's a f- it's a fresher wound that this is. 
you know, it's a fresher scab that this is picking off for him. Um, and, 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 there are, and there are people who are all along the spectrum. Universally, it's a time of concern and fear. Some are responding far more viscerally than others. I get it. Now, um, if I had someone who spent the last two months in Gaza having this conversation, I would ask them the same question. What is it we, as a community, as the people listening, what can we do to love your community? Well, uh, I think that's a beautiful question. It's not only a good question, it's a beautiful question. Thank, thank, thank you for, for asking it. Um, you know, I'm, I am not going to uh, uh, presume to know what the right course is for Israel and I'm, today, and I'm certainly not going to presume to tell you what your politics on this should be. Right. What I do ask is that you um, be aware of and sensitive to the depth of the trauma that Jewish people around the world are feeling, and particularly in Israel, but elsewhere as well, and to the reality of the fear. And my hope for all of us is that we can all engage in dealing with this very difficult, volatile situation in ways that are honest to the truth as we see it, while also imbued with kindness and sensitivity, and a mutual acknowledgement of the humanity of everybody that's involved. Um, I think that's a pretty perfect way to end it. Rabbi Glickman, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Take my water. Wow. I can feel that one inside a little bit. Lots has happened. As we walked through that conversation, could you feel stuff coming up? Could you feel moments? The the one that struck me the most is the solidarity of the Jewish, not sentiments, the wrong word, the solidarity. We are all Jews. And what happens there is part of our experience in a way that I probably wouldn't feel that I'm from the Netherlands. If something happens in the Netherlands, that's not, I'm Canadian. But to be Jewish is to feel the connection to that. Yeah, that was, I wanted to leave you all with that in your nervous system, to experience those moments, October 7th. Whatever's happened after has happened, we can talk about that. But this too is a real thing. As we go through it, again, you're not, I don't need you to agree with the rabbi or disagree with the rabbi. But I want us to realize that these conversations are important. And hopefully the skills we can bring is to have these conversations with anybody, whether we agree or disagree. That we can bring curiosity and empathy and say, no, no, tell me, tell me what you experienced. Tell me your life. Tell me where you are. Tell me why you're there so that we can love. So my one encouragement as we leave is to respond in love. In the depth of the knowledge that we have today, respond in love. A huge thank you to Rabbi Glickman. Really appreciate you sharing. Uh, He might stick around. I don't know if you want to ask him a few questions. Again, respond in love.